Here we go. Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God uh, tested Abraham. The word tested there is the Hebrew word for, for proved. Actually, the, let me, I'm not going to do this for every word that I read. But, um, but this is really cool because we, we read this passage of Abraham uh, going to sacrifice his son Isaac. Have, have you guys, this is pretty familiar. Have you all at least heard of this story before? Most, most everybody. If not, no big deal. Um, I'm about to read it. But uh, we read this passage as the Lord coming to Abraham saying, like, nah, I need to see how much you believe. So I'm going to need you to kill Isaac, right? Which is not at all what this is saying. But the word tested there definitely has that connotation. That's not a really good translation. The word is proved. Actually, in the Midrash, which is um, Jewish rabbis' writings over the Bible, um, in the Midrash, they uh, write that this word etymologically comes from a word which means banner. Okay? So like an elevated victory banner. So you could say it like this in Genesis 22.1. Sometime later, God came to Abraham to make a banner over his people. Okay? So that's what that word means right there. So God proved Abraham. He said, Abraham, yes, I'm here. Now, I'm weird. I read this passage. Can you imagine Abraham just like doing his thing and all of a sudden you're, Abraham. I'm like, whoa, Lord, I'm here. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, that's how I read that sometimes. <clears throat> I'm here, Abraham answered, verse 2. God said, please take your son, your only son Isaac, whom I know you dearly love, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up to me as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham cut the wood for the burnt offering, loaded it on his donkey, and set out for a distant place God had shown him. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. On the third day, everybody say on the third day. On the third day. Yeah, there you go. Old school church. On the third day, just making sure you're all awake, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told his young man or men. Isaac and I will go up and worship, and then we will return to you. Anybody else see that as odd? The Lord comes to him and says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. When he looks at his servants and says, we'll be right back, he says, we will return to you. Really interesting. Uh, Verse 6. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on Isaac's back. Anybody get any imagery there? Right? Isaac's carrying on his back the wood that he's going to be killed on. Uh, Abraham carried the knife and the fire, and the two of them walked up the mountain together. Father, Isaac broke the silence. Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the wood and the fire, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, My son, God himself, will provide the lamb for an offering. So they went on together. Is that not good? That's really good. Verse 9. When they arrived at the place on Mount Moriah... That God had shown him, Abraham built an altar and stacked the wood on it. He tied up his son Isaac, laid him on top of the wood on the altar. Then Abraham took the knife in his hand to plunge it into his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven, saying, Abraham, Abraham, yes, I'm here, he said. Do not lay a hand on the boy or harm him, he said. For I know now that you are fully dedicated to me since you did not withhold your son, your beloved son, from me. As Abraham looked up, his eyes fell upon a ram caught by its horns in a nearby thicket. 
Abraham took the ram and sacrificed it on the altar as a burnt offering in Isaac's place. In Isaac's place. So Abraham named the place Yahweh appears or Yahweh provides. And even to this day, it is said, on Yahweh's mountain, there is vision. Okay? I think your Bible says something different, but I like this translation. I'll tell you why in a minute. Verse 15. Yahweh's angel spoke a second time from heaven and said, I solemnly promise you by the glory of my own name, decrees Yahweh, because you have obeyed my voice and did not withhold from me your son, your beloved son, I will greatly bless you. I will make sure your seed becomes as numerous as the stars of the heaven and as the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will take possession of the city gates of their enemies. Because you have obeyed me, the entire world will be blessed through your seed. So Abraham and Isaac returned, last verse, to the waiting servants, and they departed for Beersheba, where Abraham had settled. Awesome, 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 awesome. Such an odd story. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Number one, um, does anything, um, and if you're new, this isn't, you know, you don't feel, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. You can't. Is there any questions that come up in your mind as I read this? I mean, anybody, like, is there any odd questions? Yeah. Why did he listen to God? Okay, that's a good question. That's a good question. Anybody else? I mean, be honest, like, Why would God ask Abraham to kill his son? That makes no sense. Right? Just be real. Okay. So have that in mind. Abraham, let me give you a backstory. Here's how Abraham got here. This is in Genesis 22. So let me give you like the quickest synopsis you've ever heard. In Genesis 12, at age 75, God calls Abraham. Okay? In Genesis 15, God's marriage covenant with Abraham is solidified. So this is the blood path covenant. Um, if you don't know that, you can go back and listen to that in one of our podcasts. But God enters into a marriage covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. In Genesis 16, directly after this, you have the Hagar and Ishmael um, debauchery. Like, you know, debacle. I mean, it's just like things just go crazy, right? The Lord promises Abraham all of this stuff, all of this covenant. He just enters into a marriage covenant with Abraham, and um, God enters into this marriage covenant with Abraham. And then in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands. Abraham sleeps with an Egyptian slave and produces a child. But it's not the child that God told him to produce, right? And then in Genesis 17, at age 99... God changes Abram's name to Abraham and promises Isaac, okay? And then in Genesis 21, right before this, at age 100, Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac. This is a 25-year process just to get to Isaac's birth. Now, most scholars believe, and I want to make sure I'm, yeah, most scholars believe that Isaac, when Genesis 22 takes place, is about 20 to 35 years old. 20 to 35 years old. So add to the 25-year process about 20 or 30 years. Let's just say 50. 50 years total. 50 years from the time the Lord calls Abraham, or Abram at that time, to the time of this Genesis 22 account. For 50 years, all of Abraham's life hinged on Isaac. Every promise of God hinged on Isaac. And then in Genesis 22, 
the Lord comes to Abraham. And I think you, you have to know that. Because if, you're not, if you don't know that, when you get to Genesis 22, you'll be like, oh yeah, the Lord came to prove, blah, 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 blah. Imagine doing something for 50 years based on one word of the Lord that the Lord said he was going to bring to fulfillment through your only son, Isaac. Now, Abraham had other sons, but Isaac was the son of the promise. And then you get 50 years into the process, and the Lord says, actually, I need him to die. That's weird. You know what I'm saying? I, I would be like, hell eh, no. You know what I'm saying? That was, that'd be me. Okay? So let me give you a backstory so that you understand what's going on here. Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldeans, okay? Where they would have had many foreign gods, possibly up to hundreds of foreign gods that they worshiped. When God found Abraham, Abraham did not worship Yahweh. Abraham was not somebody that was super faithful to the Lord. Abraham worshiped hundreds of foreign gods. So God comes to somebody who has no clue about devotion, who has no clue about the Lord, and he says, hey, Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of all my people. What? For no reason. So the Lord finds him. Abraham is from Ur of the Chaldeans. They would have had hundreds of gods. In the ancient world, I want you to hear this. In the ancient world, one common thread between all the religions one of the common threads between all the religions was that the greatest sacrifice that the gods were pleased with was human sacrifice. And the ultimate sacrifice to the gods would be child sacrifice. In fact, we see this later in the Old Testament when the false god Molech is introduced into the Israelites' worship where they offer their children as a sacrifice to the god Molech. Okay? So in the ancient world, the greatest sacrifice that you could give the gods, the false gods, was you giving your son or your daughter, okay? but typically the firstborn son, to be killed as a sacrifice for the gods. This is where Abraham comes from. So God shows up to Abraham and he says... Abraham, I need Isaac. And Abraham says nothing. Do you see this? Look, Abraham, yep, I'm here. Please take your son who you love and offer him up. Early the next morning, Abraham cut the wood. He doesn't say a thing. He doesn't protest. Because in Abraham's mind... This makes sense. God came to get what the gods want, which is child sacrifice. Y'all good? I never heard this. So, so some of the questions that you guys just asked that, that, that are raised in this is, what, why is God asking um, to kill Isaac after all this time and all these promises? And then number two, why doesn't Abraham contend with the request? Um, Abraham doesn't contest because Yahweh, or he sees Yahweh like all the other gods who ask for this sacrifice. This is Abraham simply saying this is par for the course. Okay, Let me, let me, let me break down a couple of words real quick, and then I want to teach you something. In verse 2, 
Mount Moriah is really significant. Let me tell you what Moriah means. Uh, Mount Moriah means this. It means chosen, the word Moriah, chosen by Yahweh. But it comes from the root word, which means sight or vision. Okay, So Abraham is told to go literally to the mountain of clear vision. Moriah is inside the city walls of modern Jerusalem and is part of the historic site of the Temple Mount. Mount Moriah, where Abraham would walk Isaac up to, is the place where the temple, Solomon, would have built the temple years later. Moriah, the mountain of clear vision. In verse 4, it's really significant that uh, it's the third day that Abraham looked up and saw the place in a distance. There's a lot of connections there. And, um, and I'm going to come back to this, but I, I, I want to point this out too, and I mentioned this as I was reading this, that Abraham says, we will return to you. That is an odd verse because the Lord just said, as I said earlier, that he's going to take Isaac as a sacrifice, right? Yet Abraham looks at his servants and says, we're both going to come back to you. It's really odd. If you go read in Romans 4 and in Hebrews 11, both places, Paul writes um, that the reason Abraham is speaking like this is that he believed even if Isaac were to die, God could raise him from the dead. So Abraham's faith is solid. Okay, He's got a couple of bad views that the Lord's going to take him to the mountain of clear vision to fix. But... His faith, if this is what God needs in order to be pleased, take it. You know, this is where Abraham is. In fact, if you go to Genesis 15, it's said about Abraham that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is who he is, right? In verse 6, the wood for the offering is placed on Isaac's back, which points to Jesus. And then in verse 8, Abraham says God will provide a lamb, which also points to Jesus. Y'all good? Okay, so here we go. The whole climax of the story is in verse 12. The angel of the Lord, which almost 100% of the time in Hebrew is really Jesus, is pointing to Jesus. So Jesus stops the killing and says, do not lay a hand of harm on the boy. And then he provides a ram in Isaac's place. And on that day, Abraham saw the Lord in a way that set the Lord apart from every other fake God. And he says it. He says, in that day, or excuse me, on that day, let me read it to you. Uh, So Abraham named that place Yahweh provides. And even to this day, it is said that on Yahweh's mountain, there is vision or Yahweh provides. Abraham gets a view of God, that is, God is the provider. Lullaby effect. Here we go. Lullaby effect. How many of you have heard God is the provider? Praise God. God is the, he provide for all of your needs. Praise He's the provider. Have you heard that? Just have faith. He provides. No, 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 no. Back up, back up, back up. Remember, all the gods that Abraham had ever been taught about, all of the gods required you to give up your most valuable thing to them for them to be appeased. Right? Abraham gets a different vision of Yahweh. 
Yahweh provides. Not me, Yahweh provides. So the Lord shows Abraham that if a son is needed, it's not going to be your son, it's going to be mine. Okay, this is amazing. The Lord met Abraham where he was in the mindset that he knew best that the gods need child sacrifice to be appeased. The Lord met him there. But on the mountain of clear vision, Yahweh says, I'm not like the other gods. I don't need your sacrifice to be appeased. I don't need you to prove your devotion, though you have. I don't need you to kill your seed because I am the God who provides for you. I will not take your kid, but I'll give you mine. Religion today tries to tell us that you have to do something to prove your devotion to God. But Yahweh is not like the gods of religion. He is not looking for you to prove your devotion to Him, but He longs to prove His devotion to you. That's the purpose of Jesus. It is God finding us on the road to destruction and remaking us in our original image and likeness, Jesus, while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's say it like this. While we were still sinners, God provided. Okay, so we said in religion, that the response to the gospel is how moral you live once you are saved. Like we can save ourselves or anyone else. You know, we used to say that we say, brother, brother, have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? Like I can make Jesus the Lord of my life. That makes me the Lord. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> have you made, let me grab my whiteboard. Have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? No, but he has. Um, so let me, let me show you something real quick. Let me show you something real quick. Y'all like the color blue or like the color blue? Let's do blue. It's Easter. All right, here we go. John 3, let me, John 3.17, which is way more important than John 3.16. If you're going to memorize a verse, don't memorize John 3.16. Memorize John 3.17, which is, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through his son the world would be sozo, saved, made whole. Amazing. Jesus was 100% successful. So this is what religion says. When I say religion... You can take that any way you want us to take it, but y'all know. Religion is the part of you that feels like you got a fake on Easter so that everybody thinks you're better than you really are. That's called religion. I don't care how you really are. I just want you to be real. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, but if you got to fake, if you got, when you walk in the room, if some, in the church, and something hits you and you turn on this, this like, you know, the other part B of you, it's like, like, moms and dads in the room. You could be, right, your kid just losing it, and you're like, I swear you're not, phone rings. Hello, God bless. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I mean? Y'all do that? I, I definitely do that. Like, Veda, I promise, if you, you're, we're going to have a, hello, Jesus bless you, you know, whatever. And so the part of you that walks in and turns on that side, that's, that's religion. There's a reason for that. You should not have to fake, the church should be the place where you are the most real in your entire life. You know what I mean? When I walk in, I take the mask off. When you go to work, you might need to fake it a little bit or you get fired. Like, you know what I'm saying? If you hate your job, but you got to go in, you got to act like you love it because you need the money, right? When you come into the church, nobody's asking anything from you specifically. God's not asking anything from you. 
When you walk in the church, the only thing the Lord wants from you is to believe that you are loved enough to receive something you did not earn. So this is what religion says the gospel is. Morals, which leads to salvation, which leads to morals. And you're in this spin every single day the rest of your life. If you act right, you're saved. If you're saved, you act right. If you act right, you're saved. And at any moment, let's use red, at any moment, if you mess up, suddenly your morals have failed, which means your salvation has failed, which means you're right back in the junk that you were before you repeated a prayer which is what happens to everybody in the church. That's why people are leaving the church in drove because they got this as the gospel. And when this fails, they feel like they have let God down. And if you've let God down, where's the last place you want to be? The house of God. If you feel like you're going to walk in the door and immediately be struck by the wrath of God, which as I taught last week, I hope we're all struck by the wrath of God because it's an amazing thing. Don't run from the wrath of God. You need to embrace the wrath of God because it's taking all the crap out of you and making you who you really are. Amazing. The wrath of God is not rejection, it's acceptance. That's real good. Okay. That's what religion says. Here's what covenant, let me just write this. This is what God says. Can y'all see this? Religion tells us how you act is what determines how saved you are. God shows us that who Jesus is is what determines how saved you are. Now, what flows from this is a new way of living. That's what Paul says. He says, should we keep, go, should we keep sinning so that grace may abound? Certainly not. Why? Because you're dead. And when he says you're dead... What he's meaning is the part of you that felt like you had to measure up your whole life and therefore you settled for inferior things is gone because the Son of God has become man, died on a cross, rose again, and as fully man and fully God ascended to the right hand of the Father, which means humanity and God both are seated together in heavenly places. So here's what it means to be lost. Let me, let me just... Y'all good? I don't have a lot more, so I'm just free-flowing. Here's what it means, okay? Here's a throne. Pretend these are thrones. I'm not an artist. Y'all don't judge me. This is a real place. I told y'all, you can be real here. I'm not an artist, okay? Here's God. Here's Jesus. And who is Jesus? Fully man and fully God. So this is man and God. Seated in heavenly places above all. When I say above, I don't mean like in outer space. You know what I'm saying? That's how the church, like, like heaven's 10 billion mile light years in outer space. We've been to outer space. That's not what it is. So, um, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? That's what Plato taught. Like, you get in a rocket ship and you can fly up to heaven. Um, that's what most people think is going to happen at the end of the age. If I could help you, the end of the age has happened. So, um, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. So, um, this is where we are. This is God. This is Jesus. God and man together. Holy Spirit around. Here's what it means to be lost. You are seated right here, but you live like you're way down here. That's what it means to be lost. You are this, but you live like you're this. Let me put little shackles on them, like little, little slave shackles. There we go. 
You're living in bondage to a world system that in reality you reign over. That's lost. You know what I'm saying? So we walk around with anxiety because of what's happening in our jobs when we're seated in heavenly places with authority over things like our jobs. Right? So Jesus comes not to cover us in blood so we can fight our way up to the top and one day make it. He comes to say, you can stop trying to make it. I made it for you. And, and that's the gospel, right? Let me tell you a story. Um, I think I told this a few weeks ago, but I'll lose track of my weeks. So um, there's this story that I heard recently, and I forget who told the story. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I like to give credit, but I can't give credit this time. Uh, it wasn't me. So imagine heaven. St. Peter's always at the gate. Don't know why. No, no clue why St. Peter's always there, but St. Peter's always there. Like he ain't got nothing better to do. So he's standing at the, at the gates of heaven. You know what I mean? He's standing at the gates. He's got a big old book. It's all open. It's like a magical Lord of the Rings book, apparently. And um, anyway, so... And, uh, and so this pastor dies. He walks up, and St. Peter goes, All right, let's see if you've made it in. Here's, the, here's how you make it in. You need 20,000 points to make it into heaven. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to go through your entire life, and we're going to see how many points you have, and if you have 20,000 points, you're in. And the pastor's thinking, This is great. I'm a pastor. Surely, I've got 20,000 points, you know what I'm saying? And so the pastor goes, well, uh, I gave my entire life to ministry. And Peter goes, amazing, 10 points. You know, and the pastor's like, 10, 10 points? And so now, you know, of course, stressing a little bit, he's like, okay, uh, I went on a missions trip uh, 10 times in my life. Awesome, five points. You know, okay, I led 3,000 people to Christ. Amazing, 10 points. You know, so he's going through, and he's not even close to 20,000 points. Well, in the middle of all this, some surfer, tatted up, just ragtag dude comes walking in, walks right past Peter, high-fives him, and walks straight in. Right? And so the pastor goes, how did he have 20,000 points? And Peter goes, he didn't. He just refused to play this game. <laughs> That's real good, right? That's real good. That is the most basic example of what I can give you. Do you know there's 3 billion people that are in church right now? Easter Sunday, 3 billion people in church, right? Because that's what's going to appease the God. The God that we were told needs to be appeased for me to show up and for me to do this and for me to tithe and for me to give my... That God is going to be appeased by me putting on my best and showing up to church. And I'm here to tell you today that you can stop trying to appease a God that does not exist. The God, Yahweh, creator God, that was revealed to us in Jesus came to us while we were still lost while we were still ungodly, and he said, you're mine, you're coming home. That's the God that we serve. The God that we serve is just like my daughter. If my daughter runs away from home, I don't leave her in a distant area or in a distant country or in a distant state or in a distant city, even though she ran away from home when I told her not to. She disobeyed the rules and ran away. I don't leave her lost. I go and search her out and find her despite the fact that she broke the rules. Right? Well, brother, you got to be careful about that gospel. It'll give people a license to sin. No, I think it'll give people a license to live. 
What could you do if the bondage of religion and measuring up and taking every single thing that you do and saying, is it good enough? Is that enough? Did I read enough? Did I pray enough? Did I show up enough? Did I worship enough? What could happen if the bondage of that was broken off of our lives and we just live? And me playing in the floor with my daughter this morning is just as much devotion as me opening up Genesis 1. And me hanging out with my wife last night is just as devotion as me standing right here preaching before you guys. What, what if our lives could be broken free from the yoke of religion? This is, you know who Jesus says? He says, take my burden because it's easy and light. Take my yoke because it's easy and light. Do you know who he's saying that to? The religious ones. He's not saying that to the prostitute when the prostitute's called, or the woman at the well, he doesn't go to the woman at the well and say, well, well, you got seven husbands. No, he says, go get your husbands. I'm here to give you a drink of something you're not going to have to thirst for again. Right? He does not say, you've had this many husbands, you're not qualified. He says, you've had this many husbands, so I'm here to be the last one. You, you see what I'm saying? He meets her where she is and takes her by the hand and says, we're go if it takes the rest of your life, we're going to walk into the promised land together because I will not leave you abandoned. God, this is a huge, God does not do child abandonment. That's what we were told. I don't do child abandonment. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more does your heavenly Father give good gifts to his kids? That's what Jesus said. Right? I don't abandon my daughter. This is what David, Lord, I feel that. This is what David says in, an, in the Old Testament. David says, you will not abandon me even to the grave. In the Old Testament, he says, you will not let your beloved one taste decay. That's the Old Testament. Do you know what I'm saying? David says, happy fulfillment comes to those whose sins have been obliterated. That's what the Hebrew word is. Obliterated. In the Old Testament. I heard this this morning. I thought it was amazing. Some of the Jewish rabbis used to teach in, a, in Jewish writings that David would sometimes go and sleep under the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was where God was enthroned in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. That Jewish rabbis used to teach that David would sneak away and go and sleep under the Ark of the Covenant. If you open your Bible to the Old Testament, there are stories where people touch the Ark of the Covenant and immediately die. And David, in the Old Testament, this is David, who slept with somebody's wife and then had the guy murdered, is sleeping under the Ark of the Covenant. What's the difference? David knew who he was. David was beloved. David said, if I've got to be out in a field singing in front of a bunch of sheep the rest of my life, I am completely fulfilled. And the Lord said, because of that, you're going to be my king. Saul was the king for the people. David was the king for Yahweh. Okay, okay. Y'all good? Happy Easter. Okay, 
Let me read this, and I'm done. Matt, go ahead and come up here. I know this is early. I know it's 11.06, but I just feel this right here. Let me read it. I want to read Hebrews. Don't turn there. I'll read Hebrews 10. I want you to receive it, though. Don't turn there. Hebrews 10. This is what it says. The old system of living under the law presented us with only a faint shadow a crude outline of the reality of the wonderful blessings to come. Even with its steady stream of sacrifices offered year after year, there was still nothing that could make our hearts perfect before God. For if animal sacrifices could once and for all eliminate sin, they would have ceased to be offered and the worshipers would have been clean, would have had a clean conscience. Instead, once was not enough, so by the repetitive sacrifices, year after year, the worshipers were continually reminded of their sins with their hearts still impure. Do you hear that? In a system where sacrifices had to be offered year after year after year, it says about that system that that system continually reminded the worshipers of what? Their sin. Does that sound familiar? How many times, have, have, and I'm not here to take shots, but I am here to bring you into reality. How many times have we walked into a service and heard how awful we are, or how bad we are, or how sinful we are? Bro, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. You're not. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's not, that's not in the Bible. No, no, it's not there. But I'm, I'm, I'm not a sinner at all. I'm a son of God. And you're a son of God or a daughter of God. And it is trampling on the death of Jesus for us to look in the mirror and say, that person is just a sinner. Nope. No, 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 no. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Well, brother, my righteousness is like filthy rags. Well, praise God, your righteousness is not yours, it's his. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He took your filthy rags and said they're finished and gave you his robe. That's what the Luke 15 story of the prodigal son is all about. The son runs away... He comes back home, and before he can finish a statement, the father says, go get my robe. He didn't deserve the robe, or did he? The robe went to the son. Sonship is not about what you've earned. It's about your blood. The father giving the son that robe had nothing to do with him running away and laying in a pigsty. It had everything to do with the fact that if you cut the son open, his DNA said, I am Papa's kid. And that's what got him the robe. You wearing the robe of your daddy has nothing to do with what you've done. It has everything to do with Ephesians 1.4. Before the foundations of the earth, you were joined in Christ Jesus together with God in love. And that's, okay, man, 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 man. Okay, so... What power does the blood of bulls and goats have to remove sin's guilt? So when Jesus the Messiah came into the world, he said, since your ultimate desire was not another sacrifice. He says this to God. Since your ultimate desire was not another animal sacrifice, you have clothed me with a body that I might offer myself instead. Multiple burnt offerings and sin offerings cannot satisfy justice. So I said to you, God, 
I will be the one to go and do your will to fulfill all that is written of me in your word. Jesus says, and this is, by the way, a quote of um, the Torah in the Old Testament, in Psalms. But what this is saying, Jesus is saying, they cannot possibly provide justice for their own lives. Doesn't matter how many sacrifices they give. Because the only one who could legally give justice to mankind was the one that the image and likeness that we were made in was, which was Jesus. The only one who could legally justify mankind was not mankind. It was the image and likeness that mankind was made in. So to say that Jesus died on my cross is wrong. It was never my cross. It was always his. <laughs> it was ne- me dying on a cross and die- as it would not cl- it would not justify my life in any way shape or form. I'd just be dead. Well, brother, how can you say that? Because that's what the Bible says. We just weren't taught what the Bible says. That was always his cross. Jesus was the lamb crucified from the foundations of the earth. Jesus, God did not want you on a cross. It was always his plan for him to come and do what only he could do on your behalf. That's called desire. First, he said... Multiple burnt offerings and sin offerings cannot satisfy your justice, even though the law required them to be offered. And then he said, God, I will be the one to go and do your will. So by being the sacrifice that removes sin, he abolishes animal sacrifices and replaces the entire system with the new covenant. By God's will, we have been purified and made holy. Listen, once and for all, through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus, the Messiah. Y'all good? I'm almost done. Verse 11. Yet every day, priests still serve ritually offering the same sacrifice again and again, sacrifices that can never take away the sin's guilt. Do you hear this? One more time, one more time. I want you to hear what you didn't hear. Yet, even though that's a reality, yet... Every day, priest. What are we called in the New Testament? Priests, okay? Yet every day, there are priests that continually offer the same sacrifices over and over and over that cannot take away sin's guilt. Salah. That's huge. But when this priest had entered the one supreme sacrifice, oh, excuse me, offered the one supreme sacrifice for sin for all time. He sat down on a throne at the right hand of God, waiting until all his whispering enemies are subdued and turned into his footstool. And by his one perfect sacrifice, he made a, listen, this is bad to the bone. Ha. <laughs> And he said, listen, his one perfect sacrifice has made us perfectly holy and complete for all time. Why wasn't that the verse that we said every Sunday? Why? 
Why, wasn't, why did every single week we quote the first part of a Romans 3 sentence which says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? That's not, even the, that's not even the whole sentence. The whole sentence is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified and given life through Christ. That's the, that's the sentence. But every, brother, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we thought that's how we were going to save the cosmos. Maybe that's why the cosmos are lost. Because we have been lost for so long. Why didn't we tell people that Jesus' one perfect sacrifice has made us perfectly holy and complete forever? That would have saved a lot more people. And it will. How, I mean, how many of you have ever seen holiness as something that you already are. It's not what we see. We've said holiness is something that you have to do. You have to be holy. No, you are holy, therefore you be holy. Holiness is your identity. It's not what you do. It's not about what you wear when you come to church. It's about who you are before you took a breath. The Holy Spirit confirms this to us by this scripture, for the Lord says, Afterwards, I will give them this covenant. I will, Im listen, I will embed my law into their hearts and fasten my word to their thoughts. What is it? Jesus says, a new law I give you. Love your neighbors as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Afterwards, I will embed my laws into their hearts and fasten my word to their thoughts. And then he says, I, listen, I will not ever again remember their sins and lawless deeds. Do you know where that verse is? Jeremiah. That's the Old Testament. I will not ever ever again remember their sins and lawless deeds. So if our sins have been forgiven and forgotten, why would we ever need to offer another sacrifice for sin? Whew! Man, 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 man. I'm gonna stop right there. I could, I could keep going. I could keep going. What Hebrews 10 is saying and what the New Testament is saying, let me just finish this, let me just finish this, I'm so early. And now we are brothers and sisters in God's family because of the blood of Jesus. And he welcomes us to come into to the most holy sanctuary in the heavenly realm, boldly, listen, and without hesitation. Boldly and without hesitation. What would cause you to hesitate to enter into the most holy place? Guilt. So they take the entire passage to tell you that guilt has been removed from your life so that you can enter the most holy place without ever hesitating. He has dedicated a new life-giving way for us to approach God 
For just as the veil was torn in two, Jesus' body was torn open to give us free and fresh access to him. And since we are now, excuse me, since we now have a magnificent high priest to welcome us into God's house, we come closer to God and approach him with an open heart, fully convinced that nothing will keep us at a distance from him. Nothing. Nothing will keep us at a distance from him. For our hearts have been sprinkled with blood to remove impurity, and we have been freed from an accusing conscience. Do you hear that? We have been freed from what? From a consciousness, a conscience that says you are not. We've been freed from it. That, that is one of my favorite things I've read in a long time. Freed from an accusing conscience. Now, listen, now we are clean, unstained, and presentable to God inside and out. Is that not, is that not good? Last part, last couple of verses. So now, because of this, wrap your heart tightly around the hope that lives within us, knowing that God always keeps his promises. Discover creative ways to encourage others and to motivate them to acts of compassion, doing the beautiful works as expressions of love. And don't pull away from meeting together as some of are in the habit of doing, but come together frequently, eager to encourage and urge each other onward as we anticipate that day dawning. One of these days I'm going to teach on the back half of that because it's real good if you get the context of it. But what, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is the same thing that Abraham was doing in Genesis 22. Jesus comes and meets us where we are. It's exactly what he did with Abraham. Abraham believes that gods need a child to be sacrificed in order to be appeased. And God says, if that's what you believe, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to give me your son. And when you climb the mountain and pull the knife to give your son to appease me, I'm going to stop you and tell you that's not who I am. I am not a God who needs to be appeased. I'm a God who is fully pleased and fully complete as long as I know exactly where you are. So I'm going to give what you need in order for you to know that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus apart from works. I don't... And day after day after day after day, there are people who will do and do and do and do thinking that's going to take away the guilty conscience that is within them. The guilty conscience has already been taken away. This is the work of salvation is not so that you can, next time you go to look at something on the computer, you'll be like, no, 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 no. Magic. Oh, man. Right? We said, brother, brother, if you're saved, you better get you some sight blockers. Jesus is coming in so that you stop settling for what is cheap. When Bruno Mars came into town for the concert a few years ago, how many of y'all lived in Columbia when Bruno Mars came into town? Yeah, a couple of y'all. He was staying at the hotel on Main Street. Was the Hyatt? Hyatt, is that the one on Main Street with the Starbucks on, in the bottom? Marriott, okay. And um, so he was staying there. And, uh, and he ate at Roots Chris one night. I had this thought the other day, and this is just a real basic, you know, thing. I, I would just bet my bottom dollar, okay, that Bruno Mars 
did not come into Columbia, South Carolina and say, I need to check out that double story McDonald's. That thing looks so cool. Why? Because he's filthy rich. He ain't eating at McDonald's. He's eating at Ruth's Chris. Why? Because he's Bruno Mars. You, re you ready? You ready? You are royalty in the earth. And most of our lives we have spent living as if we are dirt poor nothing. I'm not talking about money right now. You know what I'm saying? Most of our lives we have spent just trudging along. Man, I hope before I stand before God one day, I hope I've done enough. I hope I have enough points. And we keep trudging along. That, that, if you keep reading into Hebrews 10, the rest of it, he does not go in and say that you're going to trample on the gift of God by doing bad things. He says to the Hebrew people that he's writing to that if you go back to the mentality that you've got to work your way within the law to earn God's grace, even after you've heard the gospel of what Jesus did, that's how you trample on Jesus. You trample on Jesus, not by what you've done, but by what you refuse to live like now that you know who you really are. Is it? Y'all good? Y'all good? So uh, what I want to do today, we, it's been a year. May will be a year. So a couple of weeks, two weeks away will be May. And the exact date was, I think, May 22nd. The, was the first week that the Lord showed up and started teaching us about what it means to be loved. A year. May 22nd will be a year. And in one year, the only thing that we have taught on over and 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 over is how loved you are. And today, today, you might just be one inch more convinced of how loved you are than you were a year ago. And if that's the case, I'll do it another year. Because this, I don't care how much Bible you know, I don't care how much you were told that your calling was this or your purpose was this or this was this. I, that doesn't matter. What matters to me is how convinced you are of the love of God. Yeah, what you got? Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> that's, a per that's a perfect segue into praying. So y'all go ahead and bow your heads. Here's what I want. I, I don't want you to have a lullaby effect when it comes to this. Uh, like I'm, if you look at the world around us today, 
the world needs to be convinced of what Jesus has done. It, it has to. I want to ask you this question. Um, is, is there anybody in the room that you've, maybe you've been in the religion of Christianity your whole entire life? That maybe you grew up in church, maybe you've you know, done all that stuff, volunteered and all that stuff, but you have never, if you just be honest with yourself, you've never been convinced that you are what I just read. Is there anybody in the room that you would just say that? I don't, I'll just pray. I'm not going to say, you know, call you out, whatever. I just want to pray over you. Anybody, anybody. Awesome, 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 awesome. Let me pray. Y'all pray with me. Lord, I honor you for, for this day. Um, this, this weekend was really significant for me. Really, really, really significant for me. And I think for the first year, maybe in my whole life, I've actually understood what Good Friday to Easter Sunday is. For the, maybe for the first time in my life. I've known us that the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. But I, if I'm being honest with you, there is not a lot of moments in my life where that reality actually took hold in me. And today, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of wholeness. And so, Lord, I just pray right now over those that raise their hands and those that did not raise their hands but need to be convinced. I pray that this week, rather than a guilty conscience, rather than a conscience that says what you are not, rather than a conscience that says everything that you've done, rather than a conscience that says that you will fail, that this will not make it, that this will not happen, rather than that, I pray that this week, a consciousness of being completely convinced of the righteousness and hope and finality of the death of Jesus would be so real within our lives that we'll start to live like kings and queens in the earth. That we'll start to walk into rooms and command the presence of the room by us just simply being convinced. In college, they'll tell you all the time, specifically in public speaking, all the time, that confidence is like 90% of giving a speech. Confidence is 90% of it. If you look like you know what you're doing, it kind of doesn't matter what you say. Your confidence speaks about everything that you need to speak. Okay, That's an inferior mindset, but the reality is true. That we, being so convinced of who we are, walk into environments and may not even need to say a word for other people to be able to look at us and say, I wish I was that convinced about who I am. Because the trick to all of this is that they are exactly as we are. And it begins to be permission. Evangelism, I think a better word for evangelism in our religious mindsets might be permission. We're going to evangelize the globe. The way we're going to evangelize the globe is we're going to give the globe permission. So Yahweh, I love you. We honor you today. Resurrection. Today is a day we celebrate that death didn't hold you, but we better not stop right there. If death didn't hold you, death doesn't hold us either. And so, Lord, I thank you that though many died in Adam, many have been given life and justification through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so we honor you in this place. It's in your name. Amen. Amen. All right.
Thank you all so much. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. I hope you guys have fun with your families and everything else that you're going to do. Um, Tuesday night, we'll be back here at 7 p.m. And I uh, hope you guys have a great, great Easter. Love y'all.